Hello and welcome to the Inside Social Work podcast, where we take a peek behind the scenes into different fields of social work, engage and inspire practitioners, translate research into practice and encourage lifelong learning. I'm your host, Marie Vakakis. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's podcast episode. Welcome to episode one of the Inside Social Work podcast. My guest today is Olga Guntras. Olga has been a social worker for 31 years. She has worked in acute and rehabilitation settings with a clinical focus primarily in traumatic injuries and the impact of these on individuals and their families. As a national manager of social work services at Slater and Gordon Lawyers, Olga established the first and currently only free social work service in a private law firm in Australia, which has been running for 10 years. Her clinical work focuses on addressing the long-term emotional and social impact of injury and illness in the compensation context. In conjunction with leading the social work team, Olga coordinates the highly regarded Slater and Gordon Legal Education Program for Social Workers in Victoria and Western Australia, and she oversees the team's national e-newsletter, Social Work and the Law. As a small and unique service, it was important to Olga to maintain connections with her profession and she has done this through active membership in a number of forums. Olga has been on the branch management committee since 2014 and was vice president from 2016 to 2017. She's also national secretary of Oncology Social Work Australia, New Zealand and a member of the Health Social Work Directors Group, the Traumatic Injury Social Work, the RMIT Social Work Program Advisory Committee, the Rural Social Work Action Practice Group and the Specialist Support Professionals in Legal Setting. Here is my guest, Olga Guntras. Hello, Olga. Welcome to the Inside Social Work Podcast. Thank you, Marie. So, Olga, do you want to tell me a little bit about yourself and your social work journey so far? Sure. Um, I've been a social worker for just over 31 years. So, I studied at Melbourne Uni back in the uh, early 80s. I actually um, did a Bachelor of Arts majoring in psychology first because I was interested in helping people and thought that was the best way to do that. But doing the degree, it really made me question what I was learning, how was that going to help people, learning about perception and statistics and things that were not my favourite areas. Um, And then I discovered social work as, as an option and that made a lot more sense to me and really enjoyed the degree because I really liked the, um, the field placements and learning on the job how to be a social worker. Uh, I didn't think about any particular area that I wanted to specialise in. Um, when I finished my degree, I went on the big overseas holiday, as often uni students do when they finish, and came back and um, saw a job for a locum at the Austin Hospital in the renal ward. And when I rang up about the job, I was turned off because they were talking about people uh, dying. I thought, oh, I can't handle that. But, um, and so I didn't uh, proceed with that. But then they rang me a couple of days later and said, we're really desperate, please, would you come? And that started my 21 years of working in hospitals. So I was at the Austin uh, working in a variety of hospitals there and then went over to Royal Talbot in their rehabilitation uh, hospital and then over to the Victorian Rehab Centre, which was actually the... TAC rehab centre initially. So the vast uh, majority of my career has actually been working with people injured in accidents, um, mainly through orthopaedics. Um, some people with acquired brain injuries, some people have had amputations, I've worked with people on the spinal injuries unit. So 
yeah, I guess without really thinking about it, fell into that area of work. So that's been really my my career and my interest, uh, working with people who are injured and ill. So it sort of made a lot of sense to me when I came here. And uh, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about that. Um, so I'd been working, as I said, um, at the uh, Vic Rehab and I'd been there for 14 years. felt I wanted a change but didn't know what I wanted to do and an opportunity was provided to me. So there was a senior lawyer here at the time who had been a nurse actually at the Austin Hospital, were there at the same time but didn't know each other. So she'd worked with social workers and understood the role of social work and how social workers could assist people who are injured and ill. And she approached executive management and said it would make sense if we had our own in-house social work service so that they could assist the clients with their psychosocial issues and uh, the lawyers could focus on progressing the legal claim because the lawyers were finding that the clients were contacting them in crisis, emotional crisis, social crisis, um, turning to the lawyers for help because they were, the, I guess, the person that they had a trusted relationship with. And obviously the lawyers weren't uh, equipped, didn't have the knowledge or skills to best help them. And she often talked about uh, an example where she spent two days trying to find housing for uh, one of her clients and, and not knowing how to go about that. Executive management uh, agreed to give it a try and I was approached with the idea of we'd like to have a social work service, what do you think about that idea and are you interested? <laughs> <laughs> so it was an interesting concept and it took me a while to work my way through that. Yeah, into I, re I remember in earlier conversations you weren't really sure yeah. what that would even look like Exactly, it was a completely new service yes uh, almost one of its kind exactly that we know of. exactly exactly no one had um, ever provided a social work service in a private law firm before so I didn't have a reference point and um, I wasn't even aware internationally of um, such a service in a private law firm so that's why I was quite daunted by the prospect initially and uh, had to do a lot of thinking and sort of talking to them because they really had no idea themselves what that might look like and ultimately I decided, well, how many times do you get an opportunity like this? It's my opportunity to create the service that I want to create rather than being restricted like so many social workers are in terms of um, funding and policy and organisational context in terms of what they can do for clients. So I started on the 4th of May 2009 and approaching the 10-year anniversary happy anniversary That's thank you a decade in the role yeah incredible. yeah yeah it's very yeah very exciting we're um, looking forward to celebrating that so the program started here in melbourne yes with just you just me and initially now it's across the now country. it's yes yeah, so now we're a team of four um two of the team alexis and lorraine have been here eight years lorraine's based in melbourne with me and alexis is based in sydney and then Maggie joined the team in 2016 when we expanded the service to Queensland. And then last year we um, decided to provide a national service. So we had been providing a national service since 2013 when the referral issue was suicide, but we um, were able to expand our full service to clients regardless of their location. So what are some of the common cases that you would be working with? What are some examples of how people would interact with both the legal service here at Slater and Gordon and yep. the social work team? Sure. So most of um, the clients referred are from our, uh, what we call our personal injuries areas. So people have been injured in motor vehicle accidents, 
uh, workplace accidents, people with medical negligence or public liability claims, people with asbestos-related diseases or superannuation claims, which, I mean, we wouldn't knock back a referral, but we were primarily there for the personal injury clients because um, they hear on a no-win, no-fee basis, so they are often financially compromised and don't, didn't have uh, ready access to other services that fee-paying clients might have. So not surprisingly, when someone is uh, injured or uh, chronically ill, a big issue is financial distress. So people either have a drop in income because, say for example, the work cover system doesn't pay you know, 100% of their earnings or they are not entitled to that. So either their earnings, uh, their weekly entitlements have stopped after a couple of years or uh, their type of claim isn't underpinned by a scheme where they'll pay weekly claim payments. So, for example, for medical negligence, public liability and asbestos claims, there is nothing paid along the way, unlike TAC claims and work cover claims. You have to wait to see if your claim is successful and get a lump sum payment, which will then retrospectively cover you. So people then um, have access to Centrelink, uh, which, as we all know, is not uh, comparable to a wage. So often people are referred when they're in financial distress um, and it makes it challenging for us at times because sometimes they're not telling the lawyer as a pro, as a, I guess the issues escalate. It's at the point where they're being evicted or they have been evicted or, you know, something quite serious like that. So to be able to assist them effectively can be challenging. But we do link a lot of clients in with financial counsellors. Talking to a client today who I had referred him to his local service and he actually went this week and he said that was really helpful, that the person um, was advising him how he could save money in some ways and was going to help him with some of his debts in other ways. So it's... Uh, really nice to hear when people do follow through because there are some people who aren't emotionally ready to do that so even when you provide that service information they don't access it and unfortunately the, the problems escalate and then they get re-referred and it just makes it more challenging. So that by far continues to be the highest reason for referral and obviously linked with that is issues with housing and homelessness. So we have people at risk of becoming homeless because they can't pay their mortgage or their rent or we do have people that have become homeless. And that's a challenge as well. As we know, there's a dearth of affordable housing in Australia. And often our clients don't want to access crisis accommodation because they're concerned about who else might be living there as well. Um, or they have psychological issues where they are not comfortable to live with other people. And so some people choose to live in their cars or you know, uh, couch surf with friends. And that's sadly the reality of the situation. So that tends to be clients who are on a new start allowance or sickness allowance and just can't afford private rent on their own. Sounds like such a varied spectrum of clients that you work with, even within such a small group of what you represent at the law firm. So yeah. personal injuries then has so much yes. variety in yes. that. What are some of the key considerations or frameworks that you draw on to work with them? Is it a strictly case management approach or do you kind of weave into some of that, some of your more therapeutic techniques and some of the other skills that you learnt along the way? Yeah, it really varies depending on the issues. So for some people it, it is about try, trying to coordinate services because don't provide assistance to clients who are patients of a hospital because they already have 
access to a social worker. So we're really there when there's a gap in service. So it's about sort of educating people, linking people into services. Sometimes it's about meeting with the person. I should say most of our work is by phone, which is what enables us to provide a, a nationwide service. Some people we will go with to Centrelink or to a particular appointment to be able to assist them through that process or meet with them when one of our offices to go through um, application forms and paperwork with them. For other clients, it is around sort of counselling, crisis counselling or short-term counselling, particularly where, for example, with our asbestos clients, the person has died and so we provide grief counselling to family members. I mean, where they need longer-term support, we'll obviously link them in, but we do provide that. We also do a lot of risk assessment. There's a lot of mental health issues, um, obviously, experienced by our clients. And a lot of clients express suicidal ideation or intent to their legal team. And so they are referred to us and we will determine what needs to happen at that point. So whether we're calling an ambulance if they haven't already done so or if we're linking them into mental health services or linking them in with their, their treaters if they have them. I guess what we do is quite varied and the issues we come across are quite varied, but I mean, I would consider them to be social, standard social work issues. So considering such a huge variety of things that you do day to day, what are some of the supports that you tap into? So what are, kind, what are the kinds of professional development opportunities that you seek out or the supervision that you receive? Like how do you keep learning in such a varied environment that doesn't really have one specific client or one specific skill set and is almost like a lone ranger in a big legal team. When I first started I was seeking external supervision but my team of social workers were all uh, extremely experienced so I think the years of experience range from about 15 years upwards so I use peer supervision with them and I provide supervision to each of the team on a sort of regular basis and we also work very openly, so I'm always available to them. They'll email me, they'll ring me, you know, we'll, we'll talk about cases. We have a policy where if you um, have a suicide referral, then social worker needs to debrief with another social worker. In terms of PD opportunities, it's been wonderful here. Having worked in uh, Vic Rehab, which is a private hospital, um, opportunities were very limited to leave the hospital to, to go to anything let alone get financial um, approval, whereas here it, we're really encouraged to do that. And I think because the lawyers are required to do their own uh, CPD and get points each year to remain registered, uh, so even though we're not a registered profession, they do recognise the value of uh, continuous CPD. So we go to social work conferences, we go to shops, we go to lots of different activities and we're also linked into a number of practice groups and special interest groups so for example I'm on the branch management committee of the ASW for Victoria and have been on that um, committee for a number of years. I am the National Secretary of Oncology Social Work Australia New Zealand and go to the conference each year. Coming up in November in Hobart have a have a look at the Oswans website it's only $40 to join to be a member. Great, we can put that in the show notes. <laughs> and yeah, I'm a member of a number 
of practice groups. So that keeps me connected um, to fellow social workers. Lorraine and I are members of the Specialist Support Professionals in Legal Settings group, which uh, we're obviously the only um, social workers from a private law firm, but the others work in areas such as uh, women's legal, mental health, no more, which is for people who've been sexually abused. So they're, they're working in different legal settings, some community legal settings. So I guess that's, yeah, how I continue my learning through that connection and through conferences and workshops. So yes, as I said, I feel very fortunate to be here from that perspective, definitely. That's wonderful. And the other thing that you do, which is how we met, was you deliver training. Yes. So I've been on the receiving end of one of those trainings and I found it quite interesting because it was around privacy and confidentiality, the one I attended. Yeah. But you do run a number of other trainings relevant to social workers in all different settings. So yes. can you tell me a little bit more about what you've done in the past and what's coming up? Sure. So when I first started here, I thought I knew a lot, say for example, about TAC entitlements, a bit about work cover, and then when I attended some of the training that the lawyers provide to each other, I realised I had gaps in knowledge and I didn't even know what public liability law was. And it made me think about my patients and the entitlements they might have missed out on because of my ignorance. I felt sort of quite bad about that. So I made it my mission really to demystify the law to social workers through education. I developed our legal education program in 2010 and available nationally now. It been, has been endorsed by the ASW for a number of years. It's free education. Uh, the topics are our various personal injuries topics because I think it's important for social workers to understand the entitlements that their clients or patients may have as well as topics based on your own practice as a social worker. So as you mentioned, privacy and confidentiality, legal issues of capacity and also documentation, writing reports for court and appearing in court. I often talk about, in terms of client entitlements, uh, and I guess I call it a classic example of I worked with a patient at Vic Rehab who was newly arrived to the country and unfortunately was severely injured in a motor vehicle accident um, a week into um, being in Australia. He was obviously unfamiliar with legal processes here, with lawyers, was wary of lawyers, Uh, as so many people are, unfortunately. And it it took me about a year working with him, that's how seriously injured he was, to um, convince him he needed to have a lawyer assisting him in terms of his TAC claim. He proudly one day said to me, I have a lawyer working with me. And the information he was uh, giving me that he said his lawyer was giving him, even I knew wasn't right. So um, I said, you know, who is this lawyer? And he said, oh, this is a person recommended to me by my community. It turned out to be an immigration lawyer, knew nothing about TAC legislation. And I guess that's um, a message that I give too to people, um, that it's important that clients or people are seeking uh, expert legal advice. So regardless of what the legal issue is, that they need to go to someone who has expertise in that area. So again, that's an important message for social workers that because, again, so many uh, social workers continue to be wary of the law and wary of lawyers that they'll say to their clients or their patients, oh, just go to your local lawyer. Often that's not adequate and the person could be missing out on getting the right advice and their entitlements because of that. So we provide free legal education across Victoria, New South Wales, ACT, Queensland and WA where we have offices. It is 
education at that as that we provide free of charge it's obligation free purely because we feel that that's important that people understand legislation that impacts on their practice and impacts on their clients that sounds like an incredible story of someone being referred to an immigration lawyer for pretty much a TAC claim for a yes. road traffic accident yeah. what are some of the, the tips or the things that a social worker can consider or any other allied health profession when they're working with someone and they want to make those referrals we would know in let's say mental health if someone is really good at dbt they might lack skills in doing um you know occupational rehab so we we know that within our field there are particular strengths in different areas and then we kind of lump some other professionals all in one basket yeah so how would you recommend someone go about finding their right skill what kind of questions would they ask and how do they sift through people who are just so eager to get a client mm. and might not be the best fit yeah versus a service that like you said is an expert in that legal mm. setting yeah i mean each of the law societies in each state will have a, a list of lawyers and their practice areas so for example family law specialists personal injury specialists and per- and within personal injury as i said there are the different areas so it is a matter of doing a bit of research When I worked uh, at the hospitals, uh, if a lawyer was coming to see one of my patients uh, with the patient's consent, I would usually sit in on that uh, appointment to hear what the lawyer had to say. So I was educating myself, but also to see what the lawyer was like with my patient. And that way got to, I guess, do my own assessment of who I thought was good and who wasn't. Um, so my, my practice was always to give client options. Here are some, you know, lawyers, you choose one, you know, we can contact them and come and see you. So there's no, I guess, yeah, hard or fast rule in terms of how you can do that, but it's about doing re- research, asking questions. I mean, the internet's fantastic these days for, you know, Googling people, you know, reading the law firm's websites, reading lawyer profiles, see what you think. I mean, I do get, and our team get, social workers contacting us from all over Australia with legal questions, which might be to do with uh, their client-patient entitlements or issues about their own practice. So, for example, I've received a subpoena, what do I do? Our lawyers are always happy to give that sort of advice over the phone. And so we try to be a resource to people. But as I said, yeah, it's a matter of doing your own research and getting familiar with people, just like, you know, you do with any other service, like, you know, housing services. Over time with practice, you get to know, well, which are good services, which are not, which are good financial counselling services. And in your own head, or you might even keep a list of, you know, who you'll direct your clients to, because obviously everybody wants their client to have the best experience. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the training that you offer to other social workers, yep. I kind of want to touch on that a little bit. So what are some of the the common themes you see that people might overlook in their own practice in terms of some of those legal considerations that they should be applying to their practice? What are some of the solutions that you've got for those? I guess one common area that's not well understood is about capacity. So a person's capacity is actually a legal construct. So it's um, people often think it's a, a health or, or medical construct, but the capacity to be able to make decisions about oneself is actually a legal construct. So that's a popular session that gets requested, and I think because um, there's a lot of misunderstanding around that. Because a person needs to have capacity to be able to agree to treatment, and even though that's used often in a medical model, even for social workers, you know, for a client to consent to um, you to be able to provide your intervention, 
you need to be confident that they have the capacity to do that, they have the capacity to participate in sessions, to, you know, to follow through to make decisions. So that's an area that um, I think social workers need to be more aware of. Certainly in each of the different states there's different legislation that underpins um, capacity and it's, it's a challenge because there's no sort of one-stock standard definition of capacity. But the legislation in Victoria changed with the Medical Treatment Planning Decisions Act 2016, um, which came in in March last year. And um, it's actually a good guide for determining whether a person has capacity. And I think it's a good guide for social workers to refer to as it gives a clear definition of what capacity is and how it can be determined. Because people often think, oh, well, a neuropsychologist is the one that assesses capacity. And in reality, and in the eyes of the law, there is not one profession that has that ability. So I've been having an interesting time uh, recently with a current uh, case where a client was injured in a motor vehicle accident and he has an acquired brain injury as a result. His wife witnessed the accident. So he didn't have legal capacity to give the lawyer instructions in relation to his claim. And his wife couldn't be appointed what they call his litigation guardian to give those legal instructions because she'd been a witness. So it would be a conflict of interest. So his adult daughter was appointed. Then he was awarded a lump sum payment. And because he didn't have an administrator appointed um, because of this conflict, the money was put in, into funds in court through the Supreme Court. So they look after people's compensation monies where they lack capacity as an adult or if they're a child to protect them. There's often a conflict for people with funds in court because funds in court want to ensure the person's lump sum payment lasts for as long as possible. So if, for example, a person wanted to use that money to buy a house, if that was the entirety of their money, funds in court would say no. So even though for the person, the injured person, logically they would think, well, that's my money, that's what I want to use it for, there can be that conflict. So in this particular case, this client, he would like his wife to be able to manage his money. They have a good relationship, happy to do that as well. For funds in court to do that, they need her to be appointed legally, his administrator, so I contacted the GP. The GP said, well, actually, no, I, I don't think he lacks capacity in terms of the VCAT definition of um, disability. So again, legislation. It'd been a challenge then to get him to understand, well, if you're saying he doesn't lack capacity for that purpose, you need to write a brief letter to say, in your opinion, he has the capacity to sign a legal document. And he's been quite anxious about doing that because he's coming from a medical perspective in terms of, well, how can I assess the, the legal requirements for capacity to sign a legal document are quite different to capacity to make financial decisions, to make health decisions. So capacity, I think, is a very misunderstood area for a lot of people. I highly recommend people into that. And as I said, if they look up the Medical Treatment Planning Decisions Act 2016, the Victorian Act, regardless of what state they're in, I think they will find that a, a useful guide. Wonderful. I'll add a link to that in the show notes. The concept of capacity is a very interesting one. Do you ever have those moments where you're you kind of you're a little bit conflicted between the advocacy role of social work and some of the the deeper roots that we have around promoting clients' best wishes? And when we look at capacity, that dignity of risk and how that how that fits in with the legal definition of capacity. Because that would have been very different, I assume, to hospital work where sometimes you allow someone the dignity of risk if they've got the capacity to make that choice. Correct. To be discharged maybe when someone doesn't think they're ready or yes. to 
go back to a particular activity that you think they might not be physically able to do, but that's what they want. Yeah. And especially when we look at disability, allowing people that autonomy to make some of those decisions, how does that fit in now with the very legal definition of capacity? Yes, it, it is challenging at times because the law is black and white. And even though we're part of the legal team, obviously when there are legal issues, we you know, have to step back from that. It's hard for a number of our clients where they lack capacity and the lawyer proceeds with a VCAT application and so, for example, state trustees is appointed, the administrator, because the person then feels that they've lost total control of our finances and therefore the situation. So that's often when they get referred to social work because they're frustrated, angry, they might be abusing state trustees. So it's about working with the client and sometimes the state trustees to try and come to, I guess, a common agreement and try and advocate for them to understand the client's perspective in terms of why getting X amount of money is important. I've certainly helped some clients with VCAT applications to get someone else appointed to be their administrator. So if there's someone suitable. So it is yeah, challenging at times, but we try and sort of work within that and we recognise our boundaries with that. In terms of some of the more personal growth qualities, so what are some yeah. of the things that you've learned from being around lawyers? Like my knowledge of lawyers is probably limited to a number of fully represented TV shows. <laughs> um, but what have you taken from that of a different style of working, a different way of thinking and mm. a different way of looking at things? Yeah. Are there any things that you've kind of thought, actually I could incorporate that into my own personal development? Certainly when I first started here, my friends were saying, so what are they really like? As if we were talking about aliens. Because <laughs> unfortunately, you're right, most people, their perception of lawyers is from TV, is from films, and often that's American as well. So it's very different. I think particularly for personal injury law, I've come to see that to be able to work in that area of law, the lawyer actually needs to really care about their clients, care about them as people because they work quite closely with them in terms of the amount of time. Claims can take anywhere from a year to five or six years in, in particular cases to resolve. They really need to understand uh, the impact of what's happened to the client in terms of getting that evidence from them as well as from reports to be able to show what the damage or the injury is to claim the compensation. They are reading lots of reports. They're exposed to lots of different traumatic material themselves. So to do that, you really need to care about people, um, to be where they're with them, to support them. And as I said, they become their trusted advisor. And that's why the clients do turn to them when they're in psychosocial crisis, because they trust them. They often have nobody else. I guess I've, I've learned to appreciate that in our lawyers. But at the same time, too, I think they've really learned a lot from us as social workers. They provide education to staff here as well in terms of working with clients in challenging situations where clients are distressed or angry or they are threatening suicide and also we talk to them about the importance of self-care and protecting themselves from vicarious trauma. So we've really raised the profile of that as an issue within the organisation and that's been sort of taken up. I think there's sort of mutual learning from each other and I really appreciate that we have many opportunities at many levels to provide a social work perspective on you know, individual clients, clients in general, in terms of policies and procedures of the organisation. So I feel we do have an important sphere of influence internally as well as some influence on the social work community externally in terms of what we do with our education. That's so interesting and I'm so glad to hear you pushing that vicarious trauma because that's something that I know a lot of other professions maybe don't 
take as seriously as we do yeah. and it's something that we can really lead the way in in other professionals not just working with yes. their clients and talking in group supervision or to our supervisors but really understanding that people across a whole range of different jobs yeah. can experience that and it sounds like this would be such an environment where if you're reading all those case files and you're working so closely with someone it'd be very hard not to get invested. You yes. couldn't do that work. It exactly. sounds like without caring, without exactly. having that empathy. Yeah. And part of that's going to come with with some of that trauma. And mm. it could be the 10th case, it could be the first case, could be the 100th, but sometimes at some point one of those might tip you over. Exactly. And there's some burnout there. Exactly. So we've really yeah, worked uh, with others within the organisation to change the culture because, again, for new graduate lawyers, you know, the younger lawyers are often scared to speak up because they're worried it's going to impact on their career progression. For the uh, more experienced lawyers who often get the more complex, quite horrific cases, they think, well, I just have to suck it up because I'm a senior lawyer. So we've really worked on changing people's perceptions and, and beliefs and being um, open to accessing help and talking about, about you know, their own sort of uh, self-care and mental health. Oh, that's, I could talk to you for hours about this. This is so interesting and such a unique area of social work that I'm sure I would never have stumbled across yeah. had I not met you at a training. Is there anything that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? And then you've got yep. a few books sitting yes. here that we can recommend to some of our listeners. Yes, I guess um, in terms of the education we provide, we also do have a social work newsletter that we send out three times a year to the social workers on our mailing list. So we have over 2,000 social workers nationally on our list. It's obviously a free newsletter. There are articles written by our lawyers that we think are of interest to social workers and their practice. We know that it is of interest and value because we get new social workers emailing us all the time saying, can we join your mailing list because they've seen the newsletter from a colleague. So that, you know, we really find that feedback really useful that they do get use out of it so our next newsletter will be out in April if people want to yeah join our mailing list obviously they're very welcome to the easiest way for them is to go on to if they google Slater and Gordon social work services they'll get to our page it's got all of our contact details there and they'll just be, um, email us and say we'd like to join and we'll add them on. Great, and I'll provide a link to that yeah. in the show notes as well. Yeah. And you run a yearly seminar yes. as well. Yes, so we, as well as providing legal education in workplaces, we also hold a, a free day of legal education. Our next one is coming up on the 29th of April as a sort of a anniversary celebration. And the theme for that day is psychiatric injuries in the compensation context so I try to have a theme each year and so this year we've got our lawyers presenting from motor vehicle accidents claims talking about psychological injuries for the person injured but also for family members who have what they call a nervous shock claim people who have work-related psychological injuries often through bullying and harassment that's happened in the workplace as well as secondary trauma through being injured we also have one of our lawyers from public liability talking about sexual abuse claims, childhood institutional abuse, so what, what compensation can be claimed through that avenue. We have uh, one of our lawyers from superannuation talking about psychiatric injury as a disability in terms of claiming total and permanent disability. How do you meet that criteria? We have uh, Dr Nathan Serry, who's a psychiatrist, talking about medico-legal assessments um, so how they are, I guess, undertaken and what is considered in terms of um, doing an assessment for a medical legal assessment, which is very different to doing a clinical assessment. And often our clients 
struggle with that thinking, oh, I'm seeing this psychiatrist or I'm seeing this particular doctor, they're going to recommend treatment to me. And it's for a very different purpose. And I think that's important for social workers to understand too what it's all about. And then I'll be presenting, focusing on our um, work with our clients who have mental health issues. So I'm quite excited about the day. I'll be hopefully sending out that information to the people on our mailing list sometime next week. So it'll be a first-in-first-served basis. That sounds fantastic. And a couple of books that you've got here to recommend. Yes. So one of them brought back memories of my social work degree. It was actually on our reading list. Yes, yeah, so one that I bought when I first started and uh, I've bought again more recently because they've updated it. So I found this a really good reference. It's Social Work in the Shadow of the Law. It's an Australian book and I, you know, I think it's a really good resource. So I highly recommend people purchase that if they don't already have it again because my previous background was health another book I find really useful is health law frameworks and context and again it's an Australian book so I think it's it's hard there's no one particular go-to place in terms of a website because the law is so vast they're two good reference books what keeps you going what's helped you stay on track and motivated Uh, I think well definitely my social work team We're a very cohesive, supportive team. Alexis, Maggie and Lorraine are fantastic to work with. I think that makes a big difference. Big shout-out to those (laughs) lovely ladies. They're great. They're great. I'm always telling them I'm not allowed to leave. So that makes a big difference. And I think just the opportunities that are provided here. I was talking earlier about personal growth. So I've done things here that I've never done before in terms of public speaking, in terms of, you know, what I've written, um, presenting at conferences, so many different opportunities that, that you know, keeps me, I guess, um, stimulated and challenged. It's been a real eye-opener seeing the chronic psychosocial impact of serious injury and illness. So working in the hospitals, you know, people would be ready for discharge, obviously not fully recovered. And so you'd wave them goodbye and wish them the best, thinking, oh, they'll be okay. So it was it was and continues to be, as I said, eye-opening to see what happens to people down the track when they leave hospital, when they're out in the community, when they're floundering because the needs aren't being met or they've changed and they don't have the supports in place. So I feel we do make a difference with our service. And I guess an important point I didn't make earlier was our service is completely free to clients and that's what keeps me going as well that we are free to provide the service we want to provide working in a private hospital we're restricted to funding in terms of sessions the type of work we did here the lawyers respect that we know what we're doing and we can provide whatever service we want whether it's over the phone in person you know via email whatever we need to do, however much contact we need to have with the client, there are no restrictions. And that's definitely important to me. Um, and that definitely is uh, a reason why I continue to do this work. And then personally, holidays are important. I've got a big one coming up and my dogs always give me pleasure. You know, all the usual, you know, it's important to have a life out of work. So as much as I love work, it's not the be-all and end-all of my life. It's really important to have that work-life balance, which is what I tell the lawyers all the time. And you've got to be a role model to them. So, yeah. And Great. Thank you so much. That has been very interesting to hear about all the different legal um, considerations that might not have even come to, I guess, to awareness for so many people. So I'll put some notes to in the show notes around how to get onto your social worker newsletter for the upcoming uh, free legal day and some of those other things around the Medical Treatment and Planning and Decisions Act 
um, and some of those books that you've mentioned as well. Right. So thank you so much for, for chatting to me today. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode's resources and don't forget to click subscribe and review us wherever it is you get your podcasts.